Bruce Waltke's discourse on the biblical perspective of marriage and gender roles begins with the assertion that the early chapters of Genesis set forth the foundation for God's kingdom, depicting creation as an act of divine salvation. The formation of humanity, both male and female, reflects God's intention for humans to serve as stewards of the earth, as his representatives. Within this framework, Waltke emphasizes the institution of marriage as an entity that was established before the fall and remains central to God's redemptive plan. The marital bond is seen not only as a reflection of God's covenant with Israel, but also as the pivotal environment for raising and nurturing a lineage committed to God. The chapter takes a comprehensive look at the biblical roles of women, focusing keenly on the narratives of creation for insights into God's design for the existential equality and distinct roles of men and women. Waltke posits that the scriptures are meant to inform and guide, rather than coerce, men and women about the fundamental nature of their identities and the roles they are designed to fill. He suggests that our sexuality permeates deeper than just physical attributes or societal roles, and being male or female significantly colors our perception of the world. According to the creation accounts, Waltke maintains that while man and woman are equal in being, there is a delineation of roles, men are to lead in governance, and women are to support alongside their husbands, working together to fulfill the divine commandment of stewardship and cultivation of the world. Aware of the controversies and divisions among contemporary Christians over gender roles, Waltke urges for an approach rooted in Maldinius's wisdom. He suggests that Christians should maintain unity on core doctrines, allow freedom of expression in matters deemed non-essential, and above all, practice love in all communal engagements. This posture seeks to foster a spirit of harmony within the church, recognizing that discussions around the roles of women in the home, church, and society should not fracture the fundamental unity of the Christian faith. Also, Waltke delves into the interpretative challenges inherent in understanding the creation narratives found in the book of Genesis, particularly regarding their relevance to establishing normative ethics and practices for Christian life. He accentuates the importance of distinguishing between the conditions described in the scriptures before humanity's fall from grace and those after it. According to Waltke, one needs to carefully examine the Creator's intentions for humanity before the fall to ascertain what is truly normative. The creation narratives in Genesis 1, 1 2, 3, and 2, 4 25 are pivotal as they present God's ideal for His creation. They serve as normative texts intended to communicate the Creator's original blueprint for the world and humanity's role within it. Waltke argues that the remainder of the biblical narrative is characterized by the reality of a fallen world, depicting a human history marred by sin and illustrating God's redemptive responses to these conditions. In light of this, he suggests that post-fall biblical texts might be less reliable in establishing ideals for Christian conduct due to their accommodation of human weakness and sinfulness. Waltke tackles the issue of how scripture, which is deeply rooted within particular historical and cultural contexts, can nonetheless provide enduring, normative truths for the church. Drawing an analogy with the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who conveyed transcultural truths within a specific cultural context, Waltke contends that despite their cultural particularities, the teachings of Scripture still hold normative authority. In practice, Jesus himself, in discussing marriage, referred back to the creation narrative in Matthew 19, 3-9, indicating that while Scripture allows divergence from the ideal, 
acknowledging the hardness of human hearts, there remains a perfect intention established at creation. Similarly, Paul's teachings on gender roles within the church and home, 1 Corinthians 11, 3-12, 1 Timothy 2-12-15, are grounded in the ideal relationship dynamics set forth in the creation accounts. In sum, Waltke champions the view that the creation narratives should be treated as the foundational charter for human conduct, providing the church with guidance that transcends the fallen nature of human history. The remaining scriptures must be interpreted within the context of this ideal, while also considering the redemptive work of God in a world that has deviated from its original perfection. Moreover, Waltke provides a robust defense for the incorporation of Old Testament teachings into the formation of normative practices within the church, particularly in light of its patriarchal backdrop. He presents a threefold rationale for why these texts should retain their prescriptive authority despite cultural shifts. Firstly, Waltke affirms divine sovereignty over Israelite culture, debating that God meticulously guided its evolution. This stands against views suggesting that masculine depictions of God, or even the masculine incarnation of Jesus, were happenstantial. He disputes that such critical aspects of faith and the divine legacy within Israel were purposeful acts of the Creator, rather than arbitrary outcomes. The implication is that the social roles outlined in Scripture, especially those pertaining to gender, were God's intentional design for His people, and, by extension, should be recognized as purposeful for the Church. Waltke then asserts the prophetic tradition within Israel, highlighting the prophet's role as societal iconoclasts who ferociously called out injustices and gave a voice to the powerless, including women. These prophetic figures denounced oppression and challenged sacred institutions when they perpetuated wrongs. Nevertheless, Waltke notes that the prophets did not view patriarchy itself as inherently unjust. To them, the rise of female leadership was interpreted as a marker of divine judgment on a failing nation rather than an elevation of egalitarian principles. Furthermore, Waltke acknowledges Jesus' radical approach to women, which challenged the societal norms of both Jewish and Roman contexts. Jesus' interactions with women rendered them dignity, involved them intimately in his ministry, and esteemed them as the initial bearers of the most pivotal Christian proclamation, the resurrection. Yet in appointing only male apostles, Waltke argues, Jesus did not seem compelled by the cultural norms of his day, but rather acted in accordance with a divine mandate that implicitly supported male authority within ecclesiastical structures. Through these points, Waltke advocates that the Bible's patriarchal context should not undermine its authority in the church's doctrinal development. Instead, the involvement of the divine in shaping culture, prophetic integrity and societal critique, and Jesus's revolutionary yet selective empowerment of women collectively necessitate continued deference to Old Testament prescriptions in contemporary church practice. In addition, Waltke addresses the contentious issue of women's roles in the church, particularly in reference to ordination. This issue was examined by the Church of Sweden's commission, which determined that there is no basis in the New Testament alone for the ordination of women. In supporting this conclusion, Stendhal added a caveat. He suggested that the New Testament's perspective is not a decisive authority for contemporary church practices. Stendhal examined the Apostle Paul's teachings, such as those found in 1 Timothy 2 noting they are predicated upon the created order that often places women in a subordinate position to men. However, 
Stendhal also identified texts like 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 12, and Galatians 3, 28, that seemed to challenge this hierarchical order. He proposed that these texts indicate a tension within Paul's own writings that the church need not be bound to. Stendhal contended that the inconsistencies found within the apostolic teachings imply that the church today can reinterpret or move beyond these traditional teachings. Waltke questions Stendhal's flexible approach, suggesting that conservative theologians might unintentionally confuse scriptural meanings when advocating for an egalitarian model to revitalize the church and leverage women's suppressed gifts. He further says that some scholars might deliberately distort or overlook New Testament teachings in an effort to advance modern social agendas that promote women's equality and authority and leadership roles within the church. Further, he cautions against the broader trend of discarding church doctrines merely because scholarly opinion is divided, noting that scholarly debate surrounds even the most central Christian doctrines, such as the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Waltke, referencing Anthony Thistleton who cites Robert Morgan, mentions that interpretative disagreements often arise from the interpreter's objectives rather than textual obscurities. Waltke echoes Martin Luther's warning that misinterpreting scripture can be dangerous and ventures into Hans-Georg Gadamer's explanation on the influence of tradition and authority in our understanding, recognizing human limitations while stressing the importance of not succumbing to contemporary societal pressures. Christians, Waltke indicates, should subordinate personal, cultural, and historical influences to the authority of scripture, preserving its sanctity and preventing its teachings from becoming nullified by prevailing cultural ideologies. Besides, Waltke provides a theological perspective on marriage and motherhood, advocating that women should prioritize their roles within the home and in raising children over seeking fulfillment in external careers. He bases his argument on biblical accounts of creation, where God creates man and woman with the explicit command to procreate and govern the earth. Waltke maintains that the concept of procreation is not merely biological, but serves the divine purpose of populating the earth with beings made in God's image. He supports this view with references to Catholic theology, which points out that divine grace enhances rather than negates the natural order. In discussing marriage, Waltke reiterates that the institution, as defined in the Bible, calls for a monogamous relationship, which originated with Adam and Eve. The marital union, he repeats, is so vital that it, along with the Sabbath, predates the fall of mankind. Marriage is depicted as holy, upheld by the continuance of the church and the state to safeguard and nurture society. Old Testament narratives position marriage as an esteemed and sacred condition. Waltke underlines that significant religious figures, including high priests and Nazarites, were married, indicating marriage's integral role in holiness and worship. Turning to the New Testament, he discusses the Apostle Paul's acknowledgement of singleness as a higher calling for those spiritually gifted. However, this is not to suggest a career takes precedence over motherhood, but rather that a life devoted to Christ may be less hindered by familial obligations. Post-fall, motherhood acquires a redemptive quality. Women take on a critical role in furthering God's plan by bringing forth offspring that will eventually triumph over evil, a narrative reaching its zenith in the birth of Christ. Thus, every Christian mother partakes in this lofty purpose. Waltke ends by expressing his respect for the power of motherhood in shaping the future, evidencing his dedication to the memory of his own mother. He also admires Mary, mother of Jesus, 
whose submission to God's will is depicted as a voluntary and noble act, setting a paradigm for Christian women. Additionally, Waltke dives into the biblical perspective of gender equality, addressing the failure of religious institutions, such as the church and synagogue, to uphold and promote the equality of women and men. He underscores that this failure should not be attributed to the scriptures themselves, which do articulate the inherent equality between genders, but rather to misinterpretations by those institutions. At the heart of Waltke's argument is the creation narrative, where both men and women are described in Genesis 1.26, 28 as being made in the image of God. This divine image imparts to both sexes an equal status, dignity, and authority. As such, both are called to act as rulers, kings and queens, over creation, with a shared responsibility to cultivate and shape culture. The second creation story in Genesis 2 reinforces the theme of equality by elaborating on the partnership between Adam and Eve. The term helper, used to describe Eve, implies a companion who is fully Adam's equal, suitable for him in every way, and reflecting God's design for mutual support and coexistence. Adam's unspoiled pre-fall exclamation upon seeing Eve acknowledges their sameness in essence and their equality in status, while their differences are noted without any suggestion of hierarchy or superiority. Also, Waltke emphasizes the treatment of Hagar in Genesis 16 as a clear affirmation of women's dignity. The messenger of the Lord calls Hagar by name, an honor granted to no other woman in the vast corpus of ancient Near Eastern literature. This act of naming confers upon Hagar a significant measure of respect and individual worth. Her narrative serves as a forerunner to the Samaritan woman's story in John 4, where both encounter God at a well and, despite being marginalized by their societies, receive a transformative dignity from God. Waldke's interpretation suggests that Scripture upholds women's equality with men, contradicting the patriarchal customs often endorsed by traditional religious practice. He advocates for a scriptural understanding that recognizes and celebrates the equal value and dignity of both genders, as originally intended in biblical teachings. Moreover, Waltke's analysis presents a biblical perspective that places women on an equal footing with men in certain religious domains, specifically in terms of parenting and prophetic roles. In the sphere of parenting, the book of Proverbs stands out in ancient literature for advocating maternal influence on children's education, particularly in spiritual and moral development. Proverbs 31, 26 acknowledges the mother's voice as pivotal in imparting wisdom, which implies women received education themselves and that they play a critical part in nurturing the nation's spiritual heritage. The injunction, do not forsake your mother's teaching, Proverbs 1, 8, reflects a progressive stance that includes both male and female offspring in the audience for maternal guidance. The second aspect Waltke examines is the charismatic equality manifested in the role of women as prophetesses. The Old Testament recognizes female prophets, granting them the status comparable to male prophets. Enumerating several key figures like Miriam, Deborah, and Huldah, Waltke illustrates that women's voices were prophetically significant, guiding the nation and being consulted on vital religious matters. This is particularly notable in the case of Huldah, who was sought for divine insight by King Josiah's officials over other contemporary male prophets, a move suggesting that gender did not diminish the reception and authority of a prophetess's words. Furthermore, Waltke discusses the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament, where the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost empowers both men and women to proclaim the gospel message.
This event reflects the prophetic anticipation from Joel 2.28, where a future egalitarian outpouring of God's Spirit is predicted. In sum, Waltke, reflecting on Clarence Voss's doctoral dissertation, accentuates the historical evidence of gender equality in the prophetic ministry, debating that prophetic gifts in women were duly recognized and revered in the biblical narrative. These instances not only counter contemporary prejudices, but also affirm the significant contributions of women in the religious life of Israel, setting a precedent for equal authority in matters of faith and ministry. In addition, Waltke digs into the biblical narrative to explore how women exhibit equality in their relationship with God, particularly in prayer and worship practices. In the Old Testament, contrary to cultural norms that often restricted direct access to God to male figures such as patriarchs and priests, Women like Rachel and Hannah are described as praying to God without male intermediation. Rachel's prayer for children is effective without Jacob's involvement, Genesis 30, 24. And Hannah's fervent prayer for a son is a paradigm of personal and direct supplication, independent of her husband Elkanah and Eli the high priest, both of whom fail to understand her pain, 1 Samuel 1. When it comes to worship, the Old Testament narrates vibrant participation by women through singing and dancing, activities considered as high forms of life expression. Miriam, Moses' sister, leads a song of triumph, Exodus 15, 20, 21. And Deborah, a judge of Israel, composes one of the earliest pieces of Hebrew literature, Judges 5. Their roles are significant, even though they are not part of the official temple music group. The practice of offering sacrifices and ceremonial cleansing Show parity between genders, Leviticus 12, 6, 15. And narratives like Sarah's assert women's ability to seek God's justice independently, Genesis 16, 5. In the New Testament, women's ministerial engagement becomes more prominent, as Luke carefully documents their significant contributions in the establishment of early Christian communities. During Paul's second missionary journey, he encounters prayerful women in Macedonia, who become Europe's first Christian converts, reflecting a distinguished place for women in missionary efforts, Acts 16.11.15. Women like Phoebe, Priscilla, Euodia, and Sintiche are acknowledged for their service and partnership in the gospel ministry, designated by terms such as ministers, diakonos, or co-workers, synergos, although they are not portrayed as having ecclesiastical authority over men. Nonetheless, the New Testament introduces a concept of mutual submission in Ephesians 5.21 that transcends previous cultural constraints, advocating for an equality between men and women before God in every aspect, including spiritual gifts and prayer. This theological stance within both Testaments advances an idea of gender parity that is distinctively Christian. Further, Waltke discusses the role of women in church leadership, focusing on the distinction between their general call to ministry and their ordination to positions of governance within the church, such as priests, elders, and pastors. He highlights that, according to the New Testament, it is the Holy Spirit that gifts and calls individuals, including women, to minister in various capacities within the church. However, the appointment to official roles of leadership is a separate matter, intended for male elders as indicated in passages like Titus 1, 5, and 1 Timothy 3, 1, 7. Waltke supports his argument on male priority in church governance by pointing to the biblical order of creation, where Adam was created first, followed by Eve as a helper, a sequence and purpose that he believes signifies a divinely intended hierarchy.
This interpretation is rooted in his reading of Paul's letters, particularly 1 Corinthians 11, 8, 9, where the creation order is cited as part of the argument for men's leadership in church and society. Drawing from anthropology to reinforce his theological stance, he notes the ubiquitous nature of male leadership across various cultures, citing Stephen Goldberg's research in Why Men Rule, which disputes that there has never been a matriarchal society. Waltke sees this pattern in human societies as further validation of the biblical model of male governance. Addressing potential contradictions in Paul's writings, Waltke argues that Paul's recognition of mutual dependence between men and women in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, 12 and his statement on the equality of believers in Galatians 3.28 refer to issues of existence and salvation, not to church leadership roles. He draws a comparison with the U.S. Supreme Court. Though it serves the people, it retains authority over them. Besides, Waltke explains the need for different roles for men and women due to the consequences of the fall, as outlined in Genesis 3.16. He advocates for a new creation in Christ, where loving relationships are marked by a husband's selfless service and a wife's voluntary submission. This reflects a biblical hierarchy, which Waltke believes is predicated on love and is corroborated throughout Scripture, and stands as a resolution to the power struggle wrought by sin. Additionally, Waltke examines the complex nature of divine hierarchy as inherent to the functioning of the Trinity, the portrayal of God using masculine imagery, and the gender-specific roles within the religious structures of ancient Israel. Waltke contends that the hierarchical structure is not an aberration wrought by human sin, but an integral aspect of divine order, eternally present within the Trinity. This orderly arrangement manifests as the Son's voluntary subservience to the Father and the Spirit's submission to both the Father and the Son. Despite the conundrum of maintaining both unity and order among persons of the same essence and stature, the Son's role exemplifies obedience and humility, a fundamental Christian virtue, as seen in Jesus' earthbound life and teachings. He indicates that the hierarchical system within Christian leadership starkly contrasts with secular or oppressive structures. In Christian understanding, hierarchy is redefined as an expression of mutual, loving submission, where leaders serve humbly rather than exert dominion over their followers, and those governed offer independent intentional submission. Waltke urges a re-examination or secular rehabilitation of concepts such as hierarchy, obedience, and submission to align them with biblical, rather than worldly implications. Turning to the issue of gender representation, Waltke maintains that God self-identifies using distinctly male designations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not through gender-neutral or maternal terminology. Thus, adherence to these specific masculine titles is imperative to preserve the integrity of God's self-revelation. Attempts by humans to alter or reinterpret these divine names are regarded as acts of conceit and idolatry, which distort the true image of God as He has revealed Himself. Also, Waltke discusses the specific roles allocated in the religious life of Israel, where despite the presence of prophetesses, the role of priest was exclusively male. Priests were charged with the crucial task of instructing the people in God's laws, indicating a gender-specific division of spiritual responsibilities in alignment with God's ordained structure. This gender-based distinction in roles points out the biblical portrayal and the theologically grounded principles of representation and leadership. Moreover, Waltke explores the historical and scriptural context of male authority, 
especially within the constructs of vows and leadership as depicted in the Bible. His discussion underlines that although a woman, such as Hannah, could independently make vows to God, there were provisions that allowed male figures in her life, namely her husband or father, the power to override these vows as noted in Numbers 30, 8, 16. Waltke underscores that this structure was designed not to suggest the inferiority of women, but to affirm and maintain the male-led governance of the household. The binding nature of a woman's vow, when she lacked male headship, was equally serious and emphasized that this wasn't about male superiority, but about upholding the established order of leadership. In supporting his argument, Waltke refers to 1 Peter 3, 6, where Sarah mentally acknowledges Abraham as her lord, which demonstrates her recognition of the authority structure. He continues by noting that biblical texts consistently place husbands in a position of authority over their wives, drawing examples from 1 Timothy 3, 2, and Hebrews 13, 17, which convey the expectation that a wife should not lead her husband within the church hierarchy. However, the story of Deborah in Judges 4 offers a notable deviation. Deborah was a prophetess, and a leader who challenged male passivity during her time. Waltke interprets Deborah's unique leadership role not as a rejection of patriarchy, but as a divine strategy to motivate and critique the men of Israel for their lack of leadership and faith. Waltke then addresses the concept that male authority within marriage is contingent and theologically based on mutual submission to Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians 5. A husband is called to love his wife sacrificially, as Christ loves the church and the wife to respect and obey her husband. This leadership is not absolute, it is meant to reflect God's authority on earth. If a husband acts in a manner contrary to God's directives, the wife's loyalty to God supersedes her submission to her husband. This conditional aspect ensures that male governance is not about authoritarian control, but about serving God's purpose within the marital relationship. Last but not least, Waltke's conclusion presents a nuanced perspective on the role of women within the Christian church community. He advocates for women to be encouraged to exercise their spiritual gifts in various forms of ministry, as delineated in passages such as Romans 12, 3, 8, and 1 Corinthians 12, 14. The Bible, according to Waltke, accentuates the equal worth and dignity of women and men, not only in essence, but in their capacity for ministry and the utilization of spiritual gifts such as teaching and prophesying. Nonetheless, Waltke draws a line when it comes to the appointment of women to certain ecclesiastical offices, such as that of an elder, where they would hold authority over men, including their husbands. He affirms that the Bible does not present female elders, and therefore suggests that the church should not appoint women to these roles. The distinction between a woman's ministry and her potential authority over men within the church is a critical one in Waltke's analysis. Furthermore, he explores the relationship between equality and subordination, debating that the two are not inherently contradictory. Drawing from Earl Ellis and utilizing Christology, Waltke uses the example of Jesus, who, while equal to God, took on a subordinate role. This same dynamic is proposed as a model for marriage, where equality in value does not negate the diversity in roles. The analogy extends to the husband's and wife's roles, with expectations for mutual subjection and empowerment without coercion or manipulation. Waltkin notes that egalitarianism can have its own downfalls when it leads to a breakdown of authority or distaste for servant roles. He asserts that Christian service and obedience 
are inward qualities cultivated by the Holy Spirit's work within individuals. The pursuit of biblical ideals in gender roles and marriage is recommended, with the understanding that these are goals to strive for, but perfection is unattainable in this life. Failures are to be met with repentance and faith, rather than a cynical abandonment of scripturally ordained social structures. In conclusion, Waltke presents an extensive biblical commentary on marriage and gender roles, affirming that creation narratives in Genesis define the foundational roles for men and women within God's redemptive scheme. Humanity, created male and female, is tasked with earth stewardship as a reflection of divine purpose. Marriage, ordained pre-fall, holds a pivotal role in this pattern, symbolizing God's covenant and acting as the prime context for nurturing godly offspring. In addition, Waltke holds that while men and women are equally made in God's image, the scriptures point to functional distinctions. He interprets the roles assigned in Genesis as normative. Men are tasked with leadership and governance, while women provide complementary support. However, the post-fall biblical texts are seen as compromised by human weakness, requiring thoughtful interpretation against the backdrop of the creation ideal. Further, confronting the enduring patriarchal structure of the Old Testament, Waltke highlights its authority for contemporary church practice. Divine sovereignty over Israel, the prophetic tradition's integrity, and Jesus' countercultural treatment of women bolster his case for upholding scripturally enshrined gender roles. Besides, when examining women's ordination, Waltke critiques modern adaptations of New Testament teachings that bear egalitarian motives, precarious as this might dissolve biblical authority over cultural pressures. Therefore, he nuances this by urging fidelity to the original scriptural messages without succumbing to contemporary ideologies. Additionally, in discussing marriage and motherhood, Waltke assigns a vital, spiritually enriched role to women within the home, drawing on both testaments and Catholic theology. Motherhood is depicted as fulfilling a divine command of populating the world with God's image bearers. He further indicates the equal dignity and authority given to both genders and scriptures, exemplified through practices of prayer and worship. Also, regarding church leadership, Waltke differentiates between the broad ministry opportunities open to women and their exclusion from certain governance roles, stressing male precedence in church authority grounded in the creation order. He identifies divine hierarchy within the Trinity and cautions against secular reinterpretation of concepts like obedience and submission urging for definitions that resonate with biblical values of service and voluntary respect. Lastly, in his conclusion, Waltke maintains that women should express their spiritual gifts within the ministry, but adhere to the traditional gender-related distinctions in ecclesiastical offices such as elders. He advocates for the Christian practice of equality and subordination to operate in the spirit of Christ's humble servanthood, upholding scriptural sanctity against the temptation of modern societal norms.